like a lot of good things in life, gospel conversations is rather organic and you can sort of feel the hand of God behind a lot of that. Um, it's not a verse from the Bible, but I recommend it to you. Hamlet said, there's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough hew them how we may. And I love that. I think it's... Um, uh, Lorraine, when I walked out of school teaching about 35 years ago, wondering what on earth I was going to do, the very first event I had uh, was with Telectronics and Lorraine, who was, would be embarrassed if I told you her background, but a pioneer in electrophysiology, um, was my first client. And then about 25 years later, lo and behold, you walked into a gospel conversations uh, um, talk. So that's the kind of weaving together of, of life and their journeys. I just want to say a few words of uh, introduction about gospel conversations. Um, Lorraine suggested I talk a little bit about why and uh, uh, you know, wh where it's going to and its history. That would make it sound a lot more organised than it is, um, but there's nothing so helpful to organisation as retrospectivity, so here goes. Um, it's actually been around in, in, a, in a lot of forms over the years, but really I think the thing that crystallised the modern version was uh, my daughter and her friends who were, you know, 1920, university, postmodern world, really coming up against fairly uh, deep, I suppose, challenges to faith. And against that, I, I thought that what they were being offered was trivial, 20-minute sermons, and it was an unequal contest between uh, you know, the postmodern world that a lot of young people walk into and what was being offered. Um, and so, uh, so we began gospel conversations, uh, really with them in mind and with them as our first audience, and it's grown. We decided to put a few years ago, put up some stuff on a website for those who weren't there. And then a few, you know, a few months later or a year later, someone said to me, you realise people from all around the world are listening to this? And I said, what? And um, we get, started getting these wonderful emails, and the ones I feel sorriest for are sort of in Midwestern America, saying, this has changed my life, but I'm now, you know, it's confirmed what I hope was true, but I'm out on a limb now. <laughs> uh, can you help, help us more? Uh, so it's, um, it's been a journey of um, growth. I think part of what we've realised about Gospel Conversations is that since uh, we funded ourselves, um, it gives us a lot of independence and that's actually quite important because um, I think part of the problem with the modern church is, is a narrow focus of specialisation being tied to one position, whereas we're not. And that independence, uh, I think, is proving quite useful, at least in this topic anyway. Um, why? What's the philosophy behind gospel conversations? I want to say just a quick bit about that to put it in context, because we're not focused specifically on any one topic, uh, including this one. Um, and I suppose uh, two little stories would explain it. Um, firstly, uh, years ago when I was teaching at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, my mentor and, and great friend who wouldn't call himself a follower of Christ but is one of the great intellects in my field and a mentor of mine, told me once, he said, Tony, you're dangerous. 
you're dangerous to both sides of Christianity. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, there's the fundamentalists or there's the sort of existential, which he meant charismatic sort. Some people think it's the truth's in a fundamental text. Some people think the truth's in an experience. He said, you don't. You're in the middle. You, you think faith's a work of art. And he actually was right. Um, and and the very first, uh, one of the very first... Uh, things we said about gospel conversations is you'll think of your life as a painting and God's wanting to see what, what picture you're going to paint with it. He's not telling you what picture. But the best we can do is you know, provide more, more colours and textures to paint, paint the picture with. So I think that remains a good way of thinking of gospel conversations. And, and um, we've, uh, um, on the website, which has just been refurbished and, and we're going to, you know, do re-releases of some of the old talks. There's a phenomenal set of resources, over 100 talks, because we have great friends around the world who are really, I think, you know, powerful advocates of the gospel and inquirers. And if you haven't looked at the website, by all means do. You know, Ian Proven, John Walton, Miroslav Volf, Edwin Judge, Mark Strom. It's just a, an absolute wondrous array. We pick people who we gonna who are we think exploring the gospel in what we'd like to call the creation theology way and, um, and those resources are fabulous. And we only intend to put more effort into, for instance, for some of the better ones, when I say better ones, more unusual ones, for instance, my interviews with Edwin Judge, which have been hugely uh, helpful to lots of people, we might turn into books and start publishing stuff just to make more resources available. Um, A quick word about what I'd like to call the epistemology of gospel conversations. Um, you know, one of the things that makes me really cranky about the modern church, I mean, I'm, I'm involved in corporate life and innovation's my game and it just irritates me and disappoints me so much that, you know, the church is so conservative. Um, I had a great conversation with one of the bishops in Sydney of, about 10 years ago about creativity and... Um, he just brushed it aside, said, oh, you know, I'm actually here for, to protect the truth. And I thought, oh, that's the end of that conversation. It's kind of like going into a corporate office and saying, no, don't talk to me, I'm the audit officer. And I think, like, Rob, his name's... It's Rob Forsyth, he's a great guy, because he, he gave me permission to tell this story. It's sort of like, let me introduce myself, I'm the audit manager. You know, that's like so many Christians have got... It's not a great brand, guys. Um, but anyway, to his credit, he wrote back to me... Um, about a few days later, he said, I've been thinking about what you said and I've got to apologise. He said, I realise I have no, th no theology for creativity. That's what he said. And I need one. So I, just, I guess what we feel and what I feel particularly is, is that Christianity is not, not a closed curriculum. God's big. And, and finding the knowledge of God is like an endless sea. You, know, you put your toe in the water and if somebody said, have you gone and swum in the sea, you would say yes. But you ha in a way, you haven't, because it's so endless. And I think uh, the, the, the broad exploration and inquiry of who God is and what his project is and who Christ was is never-ending. So that sort of epistemology of inquiry into mystery, relentless inquiry into mystery, is really what drives us. Um, I'll finish by explaining quickly uh, a quick model of inquiry. This is the best you'll get. It's Aristotle. Um, these are Aristotle's famous four questions. If you want to inquire... He said there are, there are four questions and only four, and they have to be asked in order, otherwise you'll never learn anything. 
Um, the first question is, is it? Nobody learns if nothing's relevant. Why should I be bothered about this topic or area of interest? Um, most of us are, you know, on this particular topic of universalism would be there, but I actually think it's a bigger topic and it's going to get bigger because one thing I can say is that whilst Christians might be comfortable with it, any bright cr Christian in a nanosecond gets that the kind of... Cr the obverse of the gospel you're telling me is that I'm out of it and you're in it. Um, and um, so that's the is it question. Then the second one is having got to, over that, I'm, I'm now interested, it's what is it? You know, what's the model? What's the concept? This is paradigm stuff, which is really what, what uh, we're very interested in gospel conversations. Not, not, a, not a superficial inquiry, but uh, inquiry into the paradigms that shape how you look at something and re-paradigming. And, and that clarification of, of, well, what exactly does this mean? What do the terms mean? Is incredibly important when you're dealing with God because God is, in a sense, unknowable. So you've got to try to get the terms not so much right, but uh, agreed. And I would say today, that's what, Robin, you're going to do with this. It's kind of a big what is it. You know, let's, let's kind of get the, let, let's get the landscape right. And one of the big issues which people, I know that I've heard Ryan Williams talk about and Tom Wright talk about is Christians need a better big picture. So that's what Robin will do today is a big picture within which we can then, and you can have all this big picture without yet agreeing. Having got that, you get to the third phase, which is uh, if that were true, how would it work out? It's like a mental prototyping. How would this work out? How would, what, are, how, uh, what would be the implications and the modifications of that, the sort of operating model? And, re and that's really the second uh, Saturday. The second Saturday would say, well, if, it were, if universal salvation were true, what would be the implications of that? And, and by corollary, what would be the implications of, it, if it, of, a, of, of believing the opposite? And I think they're extremely, that's a very significant you know, uh, and useful inquiry. Um, and uh, it'll be a bit of a cram day with more than Robin in, but um, it's, uh, it's, um, it's very important. His final question was, when you've worked all this out, you kind of get to a, what he called the final cause and you know why things are, but that's the end of the journey. So your job today, Robin, is kind of, what is it? Let's give me the landscape. Um, I, I, uh, I think, Robin, you, I love you because you've, you've, you're a quietly courageous man and I think what you've done to a controversial topic, you've just got a very nice, gracious way about it and um, oh, that's a gift to us all. I tend to be more polemical. I think you're, you'll be much more useful to us. So <laughs> let's give Robin a warm welcome. Shall we pray as we rejoice in the gift of this new day? So may the light of your presence, O God, set our hearts on fire with love for you, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, it's a real privilege and honor to be here. I never thought I would see Australia with my own eyes, and here I am. My eyes have seen the glory. <laughs> um, what I'm going to try and do in the three talks today, just so you have some sense of where we're going to go, is first of all, uh, sketch out the, the terrain. What is the issue about? What are some of the issues connected to it? What are people arguing about? I'm not going to try and persuade you of the truth of any of it. It's just a sort of mapping exercise. 
Um, in the second talk, I've already forgotten what that's about. Oh, yes, hermeneutics. So stepping back a little bit and asking more fundamental questions about how we interpret scripture and so on, rather than looking at specific issues about hell directly, we're going to be looking at the, the issues behind that because I think it's useful to equip ourselves for dealing with the specifics about hell if we step back a little bit. And then in the third talk, which is the one I like most, uh, that's where I want to talk about the big picture. So I'll try and do that. Again, just, just to show you the shape of how a universalist would think about it, I'm not expecting that you'd have to agree with me or I'm not going to try and strong-arm you into anything. Uh, and I doubt that you'd let me anyway because you're Australian and I'm English and we just don't work like that. <laughs> now, universalism is more controversial than it needs to be. I found when I first started to say things like, oh, I thought it believed in universal salvation, there was a lot of anxiety. Um, because people thought that that meant a whole bunch of stuff that it didn't actually mean. And, and so the first thing I had to do was to uh, help people see what it did and didn't actually mean, just to clarify the concept itself. And that took a lot of heat out of the debate. And people, once people realized that the gospel wasn't at stake, well, then we can sit down and have a talk about this. So what I'd like to do is, um, and this is still the case, by the way. I mean, I was only reading um, last week Steve Chalk's new book on St. Paul. Steve Chalk is a British evangelical, neo-post-evangelical Christian. And um, he's a great guy, he, and he has a lot of time for universalism, but he's adamant that he's not a universalist because universalists believe that you can get to God any which way you can. And I thought, well, no. That's not what we think. So we're talking about something different here. I think Steve actually is a universalist. He just doesn't use that language. It's actually really very simple. This is it in a sentence, in a nutshell. This is what I mean by Christian universalism. It is simply the belief that in the end, all people will participate in the salvation achieved for them by Christ. So, I mean, if you notice there, we've got salvation, which presupposes some understanding of needing to be saved from something. So, implicitly, there's some idea of some problem, some issue, sin, whatever, uh, by Christ. So, it's got something to do with Jesus saving us. This is, uh, that's, otherwise, it's not Christian universalism. And, of course, what makes it universalism is the all people bit. That's the universal bit, all people. And the in the end bit, that's quite important. So what we'll do is try and unpack all of this. But in a nutshell, that's what I'm talking about. By the way, um, I may go quite quickly at some point, so you just you need to keep alert. Uh, but if I'm going too quickly, just wave a paw and say, stop what you're talking about, and that's fine. You're welcome to interrupt me. Um, I, I can't deal with questions, but I can deal with, like, I don't get what you're talking about kind of questions. Okay, so let's, first of all, get some sense of what it isn't, um, what universalism isn't, or what Christian universalism isn't. The first thing it isn't is the idea that all roads lead to God. And this is one of the concerns that people have with it. And yet you can see why somebody might think that, because the reasoning would go something like this. Well, look, clearly not everyone is a Christian, and so if everybody's going to be saved, clearly all the different roads, whatever they're taking, whether they're atheists or whatever, they all go in the same direction. They all lead to the same place. Um, but that's not actually what we're saying. What, what Christian universalists say is that Jesus leads to God, 
and that eventually everyone will take that route. Now, there are still a whole bunch of questions around that question as to what it would mean for someone to take that route, but let's put that on hold for now. What it, does, what it is definitely saying is the only way to God is through Jesus. Uh, not all roads lead to God. Um, the belief that there is no post-mortem punishment. Now, this, again, you can see why people might think this. They're thinking to themselves, hey, look, if everybody goes to heaven, then nobody goes to hell. Again, it depends what you mean by hell. Uh, but leaving that concept of what hell might be a little bit vague, um, this is not necessarily the case either. In fact, through Christian history, almost all Christian universalists have thought that there is, in fact, post-mortem punishment, punishment after death, and that participating in the fullness of salvation is not something that happens as you die, uh, but is something that happens in the end. So, again, it needn't mean that either. Also, the assumption often is, oh, well, clearly then you don't believe the Bible. And the, the, uh, the reasoning here, again, is very simple to see. The reasoning goes like this. Well, clearly the Bible teaches that people go to hell, uh, and so universalism can't be true. So if you're saying universalism is true, then obviously you don't believe the Bible. Um, again, that, and I hope to develop this point somewhat more later, that is also not the case. Most Christian universalists in history have been very committed to the inspiration and authority of Scripture. The issue is to do with the interpretation of the Bible, not whether they believe it or not. And so if we can relocate the discussion, it's not about whether you accept or reject the Bible, it's about how we understand and interpret the Bible. Um, another misconception is that, well, clearly you don't think sin's much of a big deal because, and the, and, the, and the idea here, and again, I can see how people get to this view. They're thinking, well, hold on, if everyone gets saved, then God must be kind of going, ah, you know, you've, maybe you've murdered a few people, whatever, just come on in. Yeah, I don't mind about that stuff, brush it under the carpet. Um, but again, they, absolutely not what Christian universalists think uh, or have ever thought. And if anyone took the time to, if any of these people took the time to actually read what these guys have said through history, they would see that this was never the case. They take sin and God's transforming work by the Holy Spirit very seriously. Um, it doesn't really matter how we live. <laughs> and again, yeah, I get this. They're thinking, hey, let's sin. Do what you like. Have a fun life. Because sin is fun. We all know that. Uh, so have a fun life, and then you're going to get to heaven anyway, so it doesn't really matter, does it? But again, this is absolutely not what any Christian universalist has ever taught or suggested, and you will see, as particularly uh, if you looked at the church fathers and some of those Christian universities through 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, they're really hot on holiness and uh, the importance of becoming more like Christ. And we'll see why when we get to the last talk today. The belief that God is loving, not just. If I, if I would be a wealthy man if I got like 50 pence or something for every time someone said to me, ah, oh, well, Robin, what you need to remember is that God isn't only love, but he's also just. <laughs> Good gracious, I'm so glad you told me. I never would have thought of that. Phew, <laughs> and there was me laboring under this illusion that God was just kind and cuddly and, uh, and not just. But this, is, again, is um, a complete misunderstanding. Christian universalists have always adamantly insisted that God is just. In fact, they build their case for universalism precisely on this and on the idea that God is holy. 
Yes, God is holy, but God's holiness and justice are loving holiness and justice. And so we need to think, what do we mean when we say that God is just? What do we mean when we say that God is love? Uh, but it's never been a matter of picking love and rejecting justice and holiness. That's never how it was thought about. Uh, it's not how it's thought about now. It's just how people imagine universalists think about it. And we don't need to evangelize. Uh, we'll look at this a little bit more next week. Uh, and I understand why somebody might think that, hey, they're going to be saved anyway, why bother preaching the gospel to them? Um, of course, what universalists, actually Christian universalists believe is through the gospel that God saves all people. Um, and so if you believe that, it seems a bit odd to go, so why would you, you don't need to preach it to them. God's going to save everyone through the, through the gospel, so why tell people about the gospel? That's just weird. Nobody would think like that. Um, and Christian universalists have not thought like that. In fact, many of them are green, great evangelists and missionaries. In fact, some of the great mission movement people of the uh, 18th century were universalists. Okie dokie. Now, let's just say a little bit about different routes that people take in to universalism, or how is it that somebody might become a universalist? And there's actually different ways. Um, this is my version. It's my Anglican. I'm an Anglican, and Anglicans have this thing, the three-legged stool, uh, scripture, reason, and tradition. This is how we do theology. Um, uh, but I, was, I became a Christian in a Methodist church, and as we're in a Wesleyan building now, um, I should pay deference to that. And this, there's a Wesleyan quadrilateral, scripture, reason, tradition, and experience. Uh, so I'm going to be uh, an Angladist and put these together. So this is the way I think about scripture, reason, and tradition. You might be wondering where reason is. Uh, I'll get to that. So scripture is obviously scripture. Um, tradition, what I mean by tradition is a whole, it's quite a wide-ranging thing. It's all the patterns of prayer and worship uh, that we inherit by becoming part of the community of faith. It's doctrine, uh, like the doctrine of the Trinity. It's the doctrine of scripture too. So your belief about scripture being inspired and authoritative, that's part of tradition. You know, you doesn't, that's, that's tradition, that's not scripture. That's what tradition tells you scripture is, and rightly so, I think. So by experience, I, I'm talking about your own experiences, but more than that, also the way in which we might um, draw on empirical sciences, for example, as we reflect about God. Uh, all the social sciences, you know, physics or whatever, I'm including that in experience. Now, the little arrows are my bit of reason, because I don't think reason has its own domain. You don't, you have, you study, don't study scripture and then you study reason. Reason is how we reflect about scripture and how we reflect on our experience, how we reflect on doctrine, and how we go back and forth between them as we think, how does scripture relate to tradition and how does it relate to experience and how does, etc. Do you get what I'm talking about? Now, a healthy Christian approach to thinking faith is going to involve all of these, and it's going to be a constant moving around between the poles, back and forth, as you reason with scripture and experience and tradition, uh, back and forth. And it never stops. So, sorry, this is going to be the rest of your life. Now, a different point, the, all those people who got into universe, Christian universalism through history involved all of these things, but particular poles were important for different ones of them, uh, in, uh, especially important as sort of roots in. So one of those roots in, one of those poles that has always been very important for people becoming universalists is the Bible. 
For most Christian universalists, the Bible played a key role in the journeys towards belief in universal restoration. If, I mean, after all, these guys are Christians, and by guys I'm including girls as well, it's, it's a generic guy. Um, these guys are Christians, and if they thought that this view was unbiblical, they're not really going to be too sympathetic to it, are they? So let me uh, just give you an example of one guy. I love this chap, Elhanan Winchester, 18th century Baptist revivalist preacher. Um, he grew up a very strict Calvinist. So uh, this was in North America in, during the Great Awakening. And uh, he's very strict, like he's a hyper-Calvinist. Um, but a real heart for the gospel and a real anti-slavery campaigner guy, Baptist minister, and he, one day, somebody sort of gives him this book, which is a, which is a German pietist book, but it's defending universal salvation. And he kind of looks through it and he thinks, well, that's interesting, never thought about that, but he kind of puts it aside. And then a few months later, he's at a friend's house, and he sees the book again, and he picks it up and flicks through it. He thinks, oh, well, I'm not sure. That's a good argument. I'm not sure what I'd say to that, but he puts it aside. But it kind of gets under his skin. So he's just, yeah, he just can't get these questions out of his head. So whenever he goes around to talk to his Baptist minister friends, he sort of plays devil's advocate and starts saying, what do you, what do you think about this argument and all this? And he, he pretends to defend the view. you know, And he finds himself... He gets to the point where he said he was half a convert, but really resisting it to the point that he would preach with great ferocity against this view, (laughs) uh, trying to persuade himself more than anyone else. Anyway, it all comes to a head when he becomes uh, the minister of the biggest Baptist church in Philadelphia. And it sort of gets out that he's been asking these questions and he thinks, I need to know what I think about this. So he basically locks himself away with the Bible and just reads the Bible. He says, I just want to know what the Bible says and whatever it says, I'm going to go with that. And uh, after a few days, he comes out and says, right, now I know. Scripture says this, this is what it... And he said, from now on, I'm committing myself to this, even if all my friends reject me, and they probably will, uh, and a bunch of them did, sure enough. But for him, the key thing is, Scripture, it has to be scriptural. And, it, and you, we might think that some of his readings of scripture are quirky and all that, but the point is this is the thing that drives him. This is what motivates him. And that's the case for a lot of these guys. Um, Charles Chauncey, another guy who was the minister of the Congregationalist Church in uh, Boston, first church, very important church, he became a universalist just through studying scripture. I mean, nobody... No universalist influenced him. He's just studying texts, and 1 Corinthians 15 is the one that gets him into it. And he's just—he's a very careful exegete and scholar. And he kind of gets into this, and then starts reading other bits, and the whole thing comes together for him that way. So for some of these guys, scripture is really key. For others, um, tradition is. Now, um, most Christian universalists reflect on traditional Christian beliefs as an important reason as to why they embrace universalism. So let me explain what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about stuff like this. Uh, God made us in his image. I know that's biblical, but this is a thing in the Bible that the church has made an important thing and the focus of attention. Um, God loves everyone. God sent Christ to die for everyone. Um, God is sovereign and will bring about his purposes. These kind of basic Christian beliefs that aren't about universalism, but when people... Some folk started to think about these things and reflect on them. They found that these kinds of ideas were drawing them towards universalism, and so it was that. And I would, I would count that as tradition. 
And this is partly why I think universalism is what I call the perennial heresy. And it's not really a heresy. I'm so I use it in scare quotes. Uh, it's a perennial heresy. It keeps reinventing itself. It's really interesting how it just keeps popping up almost spontaneously through church history with folk who aren't getting it from other folk. They're getting it from ordinary Christian beliefs that they were taught at church. And it's like, ding, or doesn't this mean, wouldn't, if that's true, wouldn't that mean? And suddenly they find them becoming cells, becoming universalists. This is why you're not going to be able to squash universalism because it's, I think, implicit in the very core of ordinary Christian faith. Um, and another aspect of tradition that is important for some folk is discovering past universalists who are Orthodox Christians. For example, Gregory of Nyssa. This is important, particularly for folk who are Orthodox Christians, with a big O, or Catholic Christians, or Anglican Christians, but also for a lot of folk who are, I mean, I was really drawn by this when I was non-denominational, charismatic-y, whatnot, thingy-mabob Christian. Um, Realizing that some of these great spiritual giants of the past, people I respected and admired, Athanasius, actually, he was a bit of a git, but, I mean, he had some good, <laughs> he had some good theology. Uh, I, I think he was a universalist, for example. And that's like, oh, wow, so maybe it's not so heretical after all. And, um, yeah, that's pretty cool. Oh, by the way, if you are interested in this subject, two new volumes might intrigue you on A Larger Hope. It's sort of History of Universal Salvation. So this one is just, like, literally out. I got this copy this morning, and it's... I think it might be currently the only copy in the world, but more will exist very soon. Uh, this is patristic universalism. This is Alaria Romelli, who is the world authority on the subject. And then uh, this goes from the Reformation to the 19th century. That's me. Um, I've heard of me. And they're, they're good, actually. They're, they're quite good books. <laughs> Just if you like stories about people and so on. Right. Um, the other routes into universalism um, experience. So for some people, a particular experience is really key reason why they embraced universal salvation. Um, George de Benville, he's an interesting guy. He was a Huguenot refugee. Uh, he was born in London, but his parents were from France, Calvinists from France, who uh, under persecution escaped. And he was living in the, family, the household of Queen Anne. Anyway, he has this experience when he's a teenager, and it's a revelation. He felt so just crushed by his own sense of sin and guilt, and then he has this revelation of God's divine grace for him and love and mercy, and this is transforming. But from this experience, all, of, all on his own, he infers that this kind of applies to everyone. From that moment, from the moment of that experience, he was a universalist, and so his church kicked him out, he went over to France and he started preaching. He nearly was executed. Uh, he was only stopped. He was like at the gallows and the, the king stopped his execution. And, and then later on, he has this, uh, he, people thought he was dead. He was in a coma for a few days. He was in the, co- he woke up in the coffin. But he has this sort of out-of-body experience where he's taken around hell and then he's shown heaven and then he's shown the final restoration when the people in hell come out to and he becomes a preacher and goes to North America and preaches on all that. But the point is for him, and the scripture is really important for him, but for him, this, the thing that flipped him was this, this experience, this charismatic or pneumatic experience. 
Another person to mention in this regard might be Hannah Whittle Smith, who was a Quaker, uh, and also Brethren. Uh, she was part of the Brethren uh, for some time because uh, she had an evangelical conversion. American, uh, revivalist, uh, holiness preacher, really, really influential, one of the most impo- influential women preachers of the 19th century. And uh, she was a universalist, although this was often suppressed. In fact, it was removed from the second edition of her uh, autobiography. Uh, she has this experience where she's on a tram and she's just struggling with, with you know, the suffering of humanity and this. And then she, she looks at this guy and she sees in his face the suffering he's having and she just protests to God about his justice and desires his salvation. And she has this sense that God says to her, the verse from Isaiah, he, Christ, will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. And she thinks... He'll be satisfied. He'll be satisfied. How can he be satisfied unless he redeems this guy? How can he be satisfied unless that for which he suffered comes to pass? See? So, so she has this profound experience that completely reorientates her. And she goes back to the Bible then, and she says, and this is a little quote from her, I turned greedily from page to page of my Bible, fairly laughing aloud for joy at the blaze of light that illuminated it all. It became a new book. Um, and that's, that's quite common. So she's reading the scripture again, but in a new way, in the light of this experience. So these are some of the different routes people take to get into universalism. Of course, universalism is a pretty minimalist thesis. And basically, at its core, it's just saying God will save everybody. Right? And that allows for a lot more diversity and different versions of universalism than you might suspect. It's consistent with a range of different views on a whole bunch of issues. So, for example, the atonement. Um, there's, there's lots of debates now, penal substitution, not penal substitution. Well, universalists were having those same debates. And you could be a universalist and hold different views on that. So, for example, James Relly in the 18th century. James Relly was one of George Whitfield's converts and preachers. Uh, so he was a Calvinist, committed to penal substitution. He became a universalist because he thought that penal substitution required it. If Christ, those for whom Christ died will be saved. How could Christ's death be for nothing? Uh, if Christ died for everyone, everyone will be saved. How could it be otherwise? So I mean, his log- the argument was somewhat different from that, but that's basically kind of where he's going. So he thought penal substitution requires the salvation of all people. Um, on the other hand, we could say, what about George MacDonald, very famous 19th century author, universalist. He hates penal substitution with a vengeance. He thinks it's anathema, destroys the gospel and so on. Both universalists, one a universalist precisely because he thinks penal substitution requires it. The other one thinks it's just penal substitution is a mess. And Anyway, what about free will and divine sovereignty? Um, perennial issue of interest in theology and universalists have taken both sides. Historically, universalists were, would be on the um, side that humans have libertarian free will. So, and that's the majority view through history. So the early church fathers who were universalists, Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, and so on, were really strong on this, about the importance of human freedom. On the other hand, there have been various um, Calvinist universalists. Uh, We think, for example, of Peter Sterry, who was a Puritan, actually a member of the Westminster... He was Oliver Cromwell's, one of Oliver Cromwell's chaplains, and a member of the Westminster Assembly, which wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is... Super Calvinistic, expialidocious. Um, 
He is a beautiful, beautiful writer and a beautiful man. And he is a universalist. Uh, but he writes this fantastic book that even Richard Baxter, the Puritan, who didn't really like Sterry most of the time, thought this was a wonderful book on free will because he takes this view that free will is compatible with determinism. God determines every choice you make, but that's compatible with free will. So universalism could go either way on that. Um, same with sacraments. Some universalists have been really strong on the sacramentality of sacraments, like particularly if they're Catholic or Orthodox or Anglican in my case. Some have been at the, at the, at the more what was called spiritualist end of things, that sacraments are just symbols, and in fact, you don't even need them. You don't even have to do them. And so some Quakers were universalists and, and stuff like that. Um, same with your view of the church. I mean, any kind of a view of the church you could come up with, you could find a universalist who had it. Um, same with scripture. I mean, most universalists, as I've already said, believed in the authority and inspiration of scripture. But of course, in more recent times, there have been universalists who took more liberal views of scripture. Uh, and that's also compatible with universalism. Or the issue of inclusivism and exclusivism, just to clarify that briefly. This is the view as to whether, granted that we can only be saved through Christ, do we need to know about Christ or have explicit faith in Christ to be saved through Christ? So is it possible to be saved through Christ even if you don't know about Christ, but maybe you just God takes the faith, whatever faith response you have uh, to whatever revelation you have, God takes that and applies the merits of Christ to you or whatever. Inclusivists would say that. Exclusivists would say, no, you have to have explicit faith in Christ to be saved. Well, you've got universalists who are both, both kinds. Uh, there are those who've argued for inclusivism, that you can be saved. George de Benville was one. Uh, he thought you could be saved through Christ without having heard about Christ or without necessarily being explicitly Christian. Uh, others were more, no, you have to have faith in the gospel. You have to have heard of Jesus and so, and so on. Universalism could go either way. So the point is that there are diverse ways of being a Christian universalist. And, and what that means is we should be wary of folk who go, oh, well, the problem with universalism is it, it leads down this route to this view. Well, it might do, but it might not. <laughs> so you need to be a little bit more discerning with those kinds of arguments. Um, so, for example, I read a very good book recently that was critical of universalism, but one of the problems was he... Uh, he too easily moved from the idea that this particular version of universalism has problems to the idea, well, then universalism is wrong. Whereas, in fact, it might just be that particular version of universalism had problems and other versions are absolutely fine. Are you all sort of understanding me so far? Because we could, um, we, I could expand on more on some of that stuff, but I won't. We can come back to it. Okay, so let's get a sort of bit of a... Um, sense of where the, the current debate is at. I don't think it's a massive debate. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think like everyone's, it's the hot issue at universities or in theology departments. Uh, but it was a, not an issue at all until fairly recently. And it is becoming more of an issue. So it's worth getting some sense of where some of the discussions are at um, as, as we go forward. So in the debate, as far as Scripture goes, I think has two foci. First of all, there are debates to do with the meanings of specific texts. 
Now, that might be specific text about hell, or hell, depending on how you interpret the text, or it might be specific texts that are, on the face of it, universal salvation texts. And so you get scholars who kind of line up on both sides and, and sort of argue, well, this text, this text is definitely teaching eternal conscious torment. And you, I'm sure you're familiar with all the debates in evangelical circles about annihilationism. Maybe you're not. Or are you? <laughs> well, let's just assume that some of you aren't. Um, so perhaps the bigger debate since the late 1980s has been, does the Bible teach... The assumption was the Bible teaches eternal hell. So what kind of eternal hell does it teach? Does it teach an eternal hell where you are conscious and in torment forever and ever and ever? That's what we might call the traditional view. Or does it teach... Uh, an eternal hell that's like God annihilates you so that you cease to exist, and then you're, you're annihilated for eternity. So both of them are eternal punishment, but one, as annihilationists like to put it, uh, one's an eternal punishing and the other's an eternal punishment. So that was a debate that, that was particularly stirred up in evangelicalism uh, in the, the, the late 80s. And that, in some ways, was a sort of precursor to these sort of people then starting to ask, well, actually, might there be another view once you sort of open up the question? This is one of the reasons why uh, some of the traditionalists don't like annihilationists, is because once you open up the question, people then start asking other questions, and we'd rather they didn't ask those questions because it's a pain in the bum. You know, they just end up going in places you don't want them to go because it's dangerous. And, and with a good best will in the world, they think it's dangerous, and I understand that. And I, I've been carefully and kindly told I'm a heretic, and that's okay. Um, so, 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 there is the, so there is debate, and there has been debate for some time, particularly among evangelicals, about what kind of hell text. But of course, you know, once, once you look at a hell text and go, you know, maybe that text there, maybe the bit about sheep and goats, isn't talking about eternal punishment as something that's eternal conscious torment. That opens up other possibilities. And so... Um, particularly with regard to texts that appear on the surface, and we'll look at these in the next session, to, to say something about universal salvation. Um, there have been a growing number of New Testament scholars who've been going, well, yeah, they really do say that. <laughs> I mean, it, particularly evangelical New Testament scholars kind of washed over them because we knew they couldn't mean what they said. But, but for those who were, often, more often those who were not evangelical New Testament scholars, who didn't really care whether the Bible was consistent or not. They go, oh, well, those bits, yeah, they really are saying universal salvation. No, no question about it. So there's been a growing number of scholars who've, who've been arguing that, which then opens up the universalist question. So there's, those kind of debates are ongoing, as are um, debates about how you hold together the diverse theologies of Scripture. I mean, everybody agrees that Scripture has diverse theologies, um, the question is how you hold them together. And I want to give a lot more attention to that in the next talk because there's various ways of doing that. But that, I think, is where a lot of the interpretation debate is at, is at or is about. Or even, actually, this issue occurs even with a single author. So take St. Paul as a, as a prime example. I mean, St. Paul seems to have texts which are universalist and seems to have texts which are sort of... Um, eschatological judgment and punishment and you know end time punishment how do you hold those together in Paul I mean presumably Paul had some kind of coherent thinking so 
what does he think these mean? How does he think these hold together? Did he even ask those questions? So those are questions that aren't just as to how we hold Paul and Matthew together or Paul and Job or whatever. It's how do we hold Paul and Paul together? So we'll look at that in the next session. Um, then, of course, we have teachings about specific... This is patristics. So in patristics, there has been a debate about universalism for some time. Um, in fact, beginning in the 19th century, you really start to get patristic scholars uncovering some of the patristic universalists, the early church father universalists. Patristics is the study of the early church fathers in not the very first century, strictly speaking. That's the earliest church. But normally, patristics scholars look from the second century, although they're interested in the first. Uh, and third, fourth, fifth, up to the eighth century, ninth century. But it's particularly what the early church fathers taught, the what you know, what the church was like, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, in particular, the debate has been looking at these leaders in the early church. Gosh, some of them actually were universalists. Everyone knew that Origen was, and so Origen tended to have a bad rap, um, and he was generally looked down on. And, and including by patristic scholars because they just inherited the way of looking at him. But as people began to study the text more, there's been a real revival in Origen's reputation. In the church, too. I mean, you know, the past few popes have really loved him. Uh, he's, he's, he's a dude. And, and, is, and there's, been a, there's been a lot of work that's been sort of trying to revive his reputation. because So there's lots of debates about Origen. And you'd really want to ask Ilaria or Romelia about this because she is like a super expert on origin. Uh, uh, she's a super expert on everything. It just blows your mind. But uh, there's lots and lots of things. People say that origin said that arguably he probably didn't say. In fact, oftentimes he said the opposite of what people say he said. So there's lots of views about what origin said and why he's bad that oftentimes turn out not to be what he said or what he thought and so on and so, so there are ongoing debates about how you interpret specific church fathers and what they taught. And this, this debate has been growing. With, with um, Ilaria's work, she's arguing that lots more church fathers uh, were universalists or at least had inclinations that way than people have often thought. And so... And, and I think there's a, there's a growing consensus or trajectory within patristics studies that, that would go in that direction. But there's still uh, questions about, well, you know, this guy, it's not so clear. Ilaria thinks he was, so-and-so thinks he wasn't. And you, know, you get these debates about that, those kind of things. So there are still debates at that kind of level. Um, another debate, and this is one that has, has revived again very recently, is what are the origins of apocatastasis? So let me say, apocatastasis is just the Greek word that, that is usually used when we talk about patristic universalism. It's just to do with the restoration uh, of, of all things at the end. So apocatastasis is the final restoration at the end. So I just use the word now because that's the word that the patristic folk tend to use, that's all. I'm talking about universalism. So one of the issues is, was... Granted that Origen and Gregory of Nyssa and so on were universalists or believed in apocatastasis, where did they get that idea from? So one school of thought is actually it's a pagan idea. Maybe it originates in Gnosticism. Uh, that's one suggestion. 
And they kind of gullibly imported it into Christianity and baptized it. And, and, they, and, and in effect, infected the theology of the church with this alien idea that didn't really belong within the Christian theological world. So that's one view. Um, those on the other side, like Ilaria, argue, no, that's ridiculous. In fact, the very first universalists were Christians. Um, Gnostic universalism was a very different kind of universalism. It wasn't even universalism proper. Not everybody got saved on Gnostic universalism, so it's a kind of weird universalism. And Origen was ferociously opposed to Gnostics. He thought they were really terrible and dodgy uh, theological characters. Um, he thought that he was getting his... Uh, Origen got his ideas, Ilari argues, from Scripture. Scripture was really important for Origen. He was a massive scriptural commentator. He wrote masses and masses and masses of stuff on the Bible. He was, one of, he was perhaps the most erudite uh, scholar of the early church, um, perhaps even more than Augustine, who was a super amazing scholar. Um, so she says, yeah, he gets it from the Bible. He also gets it from various strands of Christian tradition that precedes him. He draws on um, Irenaeus a lot. And key ideas in Irenaeus, Origen systematizes them, and makes them, and very Christian ideas from Irenaeus, and, and develops them in ways that, that go in apocatastasis. And also a very interesting tradition that you find in lots of second and third century Christian texts within proto-Orthodox Christian circles, the circles, that is to say, of churches that later developed into what we now know as orthodoxy, uh, where the, 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 the saints are praying for those in the lake of fire and Jesus' sort of, invitation in some cases to pray for those in the lake of fire and Jesus draws them out of the lake of fire. Uh, and so this idea that the lake of fire, that death is the point of no return, once you died you can't change your destiny, um, that wasn't at all clear to a lot of Christians in the early church. Uh, so they, it wasn't incomprehensible or nonsensical to them to imagine somebody going into the lake of fire and then coming out of it. So Origen sort of takes these kinds of traditions and synthesizes them into his more systematic account of universalism or apocatastasis, which is then passed down in that tradition through many fathers, um, including, she argues, and I'm persuaded, um, Athanasius, oh, who was a really important guy in terms of who was Jesus, Christology, and Jesus' divinity, and so on. Um, I need to put my glasses on. Oh, yes. Now, the third area of debate, and this is one that does interest me. Um, in the 6th century, there was a big ecumenical council where leaders from across the church around the world got together and decided on various issues. So if you are of the stream of Christianity that thinks that ecumenical councils are important, and I am, uh, I, think that, I think they really matter. Um, one of the issues with this particular one is that there is an appendix, the, 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 council, the document councils, which are all about who was Jesus. They're all about Christology. But tacked onto the end is an appendix with a list of curses against well, it didn't say who it's against, but it's against, um, they're often called the curses against Origen, even though they don't name him. And um, it, it anathematizes or curses those who uh, believe in this hideous doctrine of apocatastasis. So, so the question, the reason this is important, and it's particularly important if you're a Catholic or Orthodox Christian, is if 
an ecumenical council declared universalism to be a heresy, then it is a heresy, right? And that's that. I mean, that kind of kills it there. Um, so it does matter. And there is debate among patristic scholars about this because the, the, the general, the majority view, and we don't know because we can't know, we weren't there. The majority view is that the appendix was not part of the actual council itself. Um, it, was the, it was the Emperor Justinian who really hated universalism. He called the council. There was lots of controversy about the council. The Pope wouldn't go, but he had to be there for the council. So they went and got soldiers and dragged him along, and he refused to open, open up the council, which is what the Pope was meant to do. Anyway, Justinian was really determined to get through his anti-universalist thing. And so... Before the council started, lots of bishops, they arrived like months early because they're coming from all over the world and the planes are rubbish in those days. Uh, <laughs> by the time of the uh, American War of Independence, of course, there were lots of airports, as we now know from Donald. But, um, but back then it wasn't the case. So these, these folk, these bishops and stuff, they're all getting there early. So... Justinian calls them together and with the people who were there and, and does this, and they kind of ratify these anathemas, these curses. And then, because Justinian wants to give it the aura of a the sort of a consensus view of the, of the ecumenical church, and then he sort of tacks it onto the end of the thing. Now, if that is the case, then it has a really peculiar status. It doesn't have the status of the council of an ecumenical council, because it wasn't part of the proceedings of the council. So strictly speaking, it's not heresy, and yet it does kind of carry some of the momentum of that council. There's another debate related to this, and this is more within Orthodox Christianity, as to even if, this is, even if it's true that this isn't part of the proceedings of the council and that universalism wasn't declared a heresy, um, then the debate is, but may, lots of people came to think that it was, and so doesn't that make it so? <laughs> and there is actually a genuine debate among some scholars as to whether that would make it so. Um, I don't think it would. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that would be right at all. But anyway, that's me. And then the other question is this. What exactly was condemned in the council? Because it wasn't... Was it universalism as such? Was it universalism per se that was condemned? Or was it a particular species of universalism? And I think um, if you look, I argue, and lots of folk are starting to argue now, not because of me, by the way, <laughs> it's a coincidence, it's not that all these patristic scholars read me and went, flip, <laughs> why didn't we think of that? <laughs> no, they've never heard of me, and with good reason. So they think, and I'm agreeing with them because they're clever, um, that, that actually it's not universalism as an abstract idea, it's universalism as connected to a whole bunch of other ideas as part of a network or system of beliefs that was very problematic. So the background to this, and maybe you think I'm going on about this too much, but it, it does really matter for a lot of Christians as to is universalism technically a heresy, which is why I'm saying a little bit more about it. Um, what was I saying? Uh, yeah, okay. So the background to this is Origen's ideas had been developed in the centuries. He was around in the 3rd century. This is the 6th century. So by that time, you know, particularly in certain monasteries in Palestine, Origen's ideas had been developed sometimes in quite quirky ways. 
and ways that were tied in with pre-existence of souls and reincarnation and a whole bunch of other stuff. And what's condemned in those anathemas or those curses is that whole system, that network. So the doctrine of apocat, the monstrous doctrine of apocatastasis and the restoration of demons and all that that's condemned is the doctrine as connected into that whole network. And if you read them, you'll see some of those connections. Um, which means that, in fact, universalism as such is not condemned, just that particular species of universalism. Which is why, for instance, Gregory of Nyssa is never condemned. In fact, he is called the father of the fathers. He is like, he is one of the architects of Christian orthodoxy and is highly esteemed by those who um, are within Catholicism and orthodoxy. He's a saint. Uh, even though he was an overt universalist, because he didn't believe in the pre-existence of souls and all this kind of stuff that was condemned. So all of this is to say there is ongoing debate about that, and it matters because it ties into the whole question of whether universalism is a heresy. I'm of the view that it's not, or I would be in trouble. Maybe not with God, who knows? Maybe with God. I wouldn't want to be in trouble with God. Um, and then the debate on universe. Don't forget to ring the bell. It's not ready, is it? No. Okay. Within contemporary theology and philosophy, here there is lots of debate, and there's lots of issues that um, that, that come up under discussion and, and are well worth thinking about. I don't know the answers to all of them, by the way. Which way we should go? But these are the kinds of issues that would be talked about and raised. So one of them concerns the nature of divine justice, because, of course, traditional views of hell are based on a particular view of what divine justice is. It's a view that justice is understood in terms of retribution. The punishment must fit the crime. It should be appropriate to the crime and proportionate to the crime, which, of course, in itself raises a whole bunch of questions about traditional hell. Because, of course, if, if traditional hell is built on the idea that the punishment should fit the crime, how could a finite sin committed by a finite creature be so severe that it merits the appropriate punishment as an infinite punishment. So in itself, the, the doctrine of retribution which props up traditional views of hell seems to undermine them at the same time, or at least make problems for them. So there are debates about that. There are attempts to defend traditional views of hell in the face of this kind of objection. But there are also explorations among philosophers and theologians of alternative understandings of what divine justice might be. Uh, oftentimes in scripture, justice is seen as something that is about God saving justice. God saves people through justice. God restores people through his justice. It's not simply about uh, retribution. So there's all sorts of discussions uh, about what divine justice might be in contemporary theology and biblical studies, but particularly theology. Then, of course, we've already mentioned this, divine free will, free will and divine sovereignty. And Particularly for universalism, the question becomes this. If, if humans have freedom, you know, God can't force people's wills. So how does God ensure that everybody chooses to be saved? You see? Uh, and that's a really good question. Uh, and it's a question that should be taken completely seriously. And um, there are ongoing debates, particularly in philosophy of religion and philosophy, about this. How is it that if people have free will, uh, understood in terms of the ability to do something or not do it, uh, how is it that God can ensure that you do the thing that God wants you to do without forcing you? And if he can't, how does he ensure that the end of the cosmos will ever be what he wants? Because we can thwart God's purposes, or can we? 
Um, two of the best people in this debate, Jerry Walls, a Methodist uh, philosopher, is you know very sympathetic to universalism. But he's not a universalist. Uh, he, he does think you can be saved from hell, though. <laughs> but he thinks uh, that because of free will, you can't ever be guarantee universalism. Um, on the other hand, Thomas Tolbert and Eric Raytan and folk like that argue against that, that, that in fact you can. So I'm not, I mean, they're interesting debates. If you want to know the answer is, yeah, God can save everyone, even if they got free will. That's the answer. <laughs> um, or what about divine love? What are the implications of divine love? Might, might, hell, might hell be a loving thing? I mean, so some people argue that it's loving for God to send people to hell. And even if it, hell was eternal conscious torment, Eleanor Stump, for example, Catholic philosopher, argues that um, on a sort of Thomas Aquinas kind of approach, um, even just existing is a good. If God deprived you of existence, he's depriving you of a good. So allowing you to exist in eternal conscious torment is at least a God allowing you some good. How kind. Um, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to sound sarcastic there. She's brilliant. By the way, she is brilliant, and she's a brilliant philosopher and a lovely person. And you can't be right about everything, sorry. <laughs> oh, he says to himself, right. <laughs> Okay, good. Um, atonement, yes, well, we've already said that. I mean, you know, the, the, there are debates about atonement, and some of the debates about penal substitution kind of link in with this. I mean, I was saying to somebody yesterday, uh, um, John, John Owen, the great Puritan uh, divine, he wrote this, what is perhaps the best defense of limited atonement? This is the view that Christ died for some people, but not others. And um, I remember reading it as a teenager, and um, bits of it really drawing me and attracting me and bits of it really appalling me. Even though I was a Calvinist at the time, I still found parts of it appalling. But one of the things that was interesting that struck me is one of his reasons for um, arguing that Christ didn't die for everyone was this. He says, look, everyone for, who, for whom Christ dies will be saved. I mean, Christ's death can't be in vain. This is, so if Christ died for everyone, they'd all be saved, obviously. But they're not all saved. We know that because some people go to hell. So he couldn't have died for everybody. I mean, you know, the logic seems, at least on his understanding of atonement, the logic is impeccable. And, um, but I think he was also right, you know. Or maybe he could have flipped it around and thought, well, Christ died for everyone. Because, of course, the Bible does actually say that. Although, to be fair, he has a good go at trying to show how the text that looked like the Bible actually says that don't actually say that. And, you know, a pretty intelligent attempt to do it. It doesn't work, but it's pretty good. Um, if Christ did die for everyone, yeah, maybe he should have contemplated the possibility of universalism, or maybe that would have been a bridge too far. Um, on an election, I mean, this is really in contemporary theology, and particularly in contemporary reform theology, one of the really core things that has sort of raised the issue again. Of course, Calvin, as you know, thought that God elected uh, some people to salvation, but not everybody. And as this developed within Calvinism, this sometimes became a sort of double predestination whereby God elects some people to salvation and elects other people to, to damnation. Um, now, but within the Reformed tradition, there are always, there, there was and is always sort of rethinking of different doctrinal focuses. And um, one of those was election. And so Steiermacher in the 19th century rethought in a way that where he's trying to defend Calvin 
Um, but he's arguing that actually there is not a double decree. Not, God doesn't decide some for salvation and some for damnation. God makes a single decree. And what he decrees, he doesn't elect um, individuals. He elects the human race. Right? So God elects humanity, the race, for salvation. But of course the race can't experience that salvation unless all the individuals that compose it experience that salvation. So he he ends up arguing for universalism, but a different account of election. But what's been a lot more influential than that, and as I'm sure many of you were aware, is Karl Barth uh, in the 20th century, again with a radical revision of the Reformed doctrine of election. And he argued that, in fact, Christ doesn't elect some people to salvation, some people to damnation. God doesn't elect any individual people. He elects Christ. So Christ is the subject of election, and Christ is elect. And those who share in Christ are, are elect. Well, everybody is elect in Christ. So, so, so there's a sense in which God doesn't elect me to salvation, he elects Christ. But in Christ, I share in that election of Christ. And that rethinking of election has led a fair few people. I mean, Jürgen Moltmann was one of Barth's students, and he went on with universalism. And Jacques Ellul, the French Reformed thinker, developed these kind of ideas in universalist directions. Barth always insisted he wasn't a universalist. Um, we could talk about that, but anyway. So these are some of the debates, among others, that, that are going on in philosophy and theology, which leads us to the conclusion, just about time and not a moment too soon. Um, the conclusion to the first thing is this, if I can remember. Ah, yes. If we are going to be thinking about universalism and what we think about it and whether it's true or not, we at least, at least, and first of all, need to have a nuanced and clear understanding of what it actually is we are thinking about. Because if we don't have a clear idea of the idea we're thinking about, we're never going to be able to think about it, obviously. And the other thing that comes out of this is, even if you find some version of universalism problematic, and all of us will, I find all sorts of versions of universalism problematic, um, and, and having read masses of them for this history book, <laughs> you know, a lot of these people, I think, you're nuts, right? <laughs> but this is what they thought, and yeah, whatever. And I know a bunch of people will find my particular version of universalism problematic, but, but whether we do or not, that, that shouldn't shut down the question itself. Uh, because it might be that might well be that there are versions of universalism that don't suffer from those particular things we find problematic. So if you find something I say, oh, that's nuts, that's not going to work, that won't fly, you don't leap to the conclusion that it can't fly. There might be another way. There might be another way of reconfiguring it. So it's worth sort of sticking with the question and pursuing it. Um, here endeth today's lesson, part one. Perhaps we could take one question. Yeah, so look at this. Initially you said, look, there's all sorts of um, misunderstandings about the word universalism. Have you had any thoughts about whether that's how helpful or otherwise is that term? Yeah. Uh, and whether mm. there's a better way of... Yes, it's interesting. And in fact, some historically, so um, James Relly is a case in point, refused to call himself a universalist, hated the word. He's an 18th century um, preacher in London, the, the guy who was the George Whitfield guy. And so did John Murray, the founder, not really the founder, but the pastor of the very first American universalist church. Uh, he was a follower of Relly. 
they hated the word universalism because it's not in the Bible. Um, so they wouldn't. Use, so Relly would always say, "I'm not a universalist." Um, he thought everyone would be saved, but he wouldn't be calling himself a universalist because it's not a biblical word. Um, I don't have that kind of aversion. I'm quite happy to use words that aren't biblical words if it's explaining a biblical concept, like Trinity, for example. Um, it's not a biblical word, but I think it is a way of, you know, conceptualizing a, a biblical idea. However, there are issues here, and one of the some of the debates. So, for example, Thomas Talbot, who no, not Thomas Talbot, Thomas Torrance, T. F. Torrance, who is a very well-known 20th-century Scottish Presbyterian Reformed theologian, a really, really fabulous uh, theologian, was really opposed to universalism. Um, he hated the term, but it was the ism thing that really he didn't like. He didn't like the idea, and, and he's not alone in this. Uh, he didn't like the idea that God, it felt, I think, I mean, I'm putting words in his mouth here, but I think it felt to him like you're trying to squeeze God into some preordained system that God has to fit. You know, the, the sort of connotations of isms that, that he didn't like. And he, he thought, I mean, I think he'd have, he didn't think that you could know or say whether God would save everyone or not. So that's the other thing. Um, maybe everyone will be saved, he's, but maybe they won't. And it's not as we can't say. So, you know, he's not a universalist as such. But I think his theology would be very um, sympathetic to universalism, properly construed, and definitely if you drop the term universalism. So some 18th century universalists didn't talk about it like that. Some of them would say, talk about universal restoration. And they'd use sort of other phrases, you know. We believe in the restoration. We believe in the restoration of all things. We, um, I quite like that. In fact, the very first edition of this slide thing, and the one that I printed out before I changed it, didn't have it. I had to write it. It's just, it just takes more space. <laughs> so you say, oh, are you, are you a universal restorationist or something? It just takes longer to say. So I, I just think, I'll oh, stuff it. I'll call myself a universalist and just explain what I mean by that. Um, if you have a problem with the word, I'm very happy to drop it and just say, I believe that God will save all people through Christ. I believe in the restoration of all things through Christ. It just takes longer to say. It's just clumsy. Um, so my thought is, if you want to drop it, drop it. There are reasons it might disturb some people. It also has the problem of connotations because people think they know what it means. Um, but on the other hand, that might be a helpful provocation to make them pay attention. I'm going to tell you something that's going to freak you out. Here's something you think scary. Now let me tell you that it doesn't necessarily mean what you think it means. Um, it, might, it might, in some cases, get people's attention and so to focus thought. Um, so per, if you don't want to use the term, it doesn't bother me. I just kind of use it because it's easy. And then I take the consequences that of people misunderstanding me, and that's okay, because I really don't care what people think about me anyway. So, oh, you know, although, yeah, mostly. It depends on what mood I'm in, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, I, you know, I don't normally go home and cry at night when someone calls me a heretic. I just smile, you know. Does that, is that, yeah, okay, thanks. Thank